The Bible reading is taken from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the verses 1 to 11. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the verses 1 to 11, and I read, The day of the Lord. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we, we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Are you a countdown kind of person? Uh, I am, definitely. My diary is littered with prompts especially at the moment for weddings. We've been praying for them. Um, we've got a number of weddings in the church family at Grace Church. On Friday, it was two weeks till Matilda and Didier's wedding, five weeks to Matthew and Joy's. It was six weeks to Becca's and Tony's. Tomorrow, it's four weeks to David, Sita uh, and Johnny's, and then nine weeks to David and Faith. There's a lot going on. And for those couples, they'll definitely be on countdown, won't they? They'll be those final weeks ticking things off the to-do list, busy getting ready. But it's not just weddings. There's loads of things we get ready for, isn't there? Some we look forward to, whether it's a holiday or uh, moving into the new home or a special birthday celebration. And other things might fill us with anxiety, whether it's getting exam results, uh, waiting for health results. Uh, as we heard, just waiting for the birth of a baby can be both joyous and full of anxiety. Maybe it's playing an important match or a concert or starting the first day of work. And just in case you're wondering, it is only 25 weeks till Christmas Day today. <laughs> See, all of these events need us to be ready and prepared. And you might be tempted to hit that snooze button on your alarm. Oversleeping on those sort of days just brings chaos, doesn't it? It could ruin things, not just for ourselves, but for others. And so it's also easy for Christians to sort of metaphorically hit the snooze button on Jesus's return. Perhaps we've come, become a bit complacent or even skeptical. You know, will he ever come back? Maybe we're just too distracted by the business of everyday life or through spiritual drift, whether that's the world's pleasures looking more appealing or the inner struggles that we have, the doubts of the gospel or just plain self-centeredness that can become so dominant. Whatever the way, the net effect is distraction of this distraction is the same. It's, it breeds a dangerous complacency, a disbelief that ignores the reality of judgment that's coming. And the Apostle Paul knew the Thessalonian church was struggling with this issue of Jesus' return. Uh, last week, as Jez very skillfully and pastorally took us through chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, we see there Paul reassuring and comforting 
the, the Thessalonian Christians that whilst they grieve for those who are Christians who have died, they do not need to worry about them. Those who have died in Christ, that is, believing in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, well, they will be with him on the final day. There's nothing they're going to miss out on. And now, in the verses that Michelle read from chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, Paul turns his attention, same subject, different angle, challenging Christians to live lives appropriately as they wait for Jesus' return. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Ultimately, Jesus' return should inspire us to be ready and steady, living in lives that please God, as we saw back in chapter, one verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Living lives that please God. So the first thing that I just want to pick up on as we go through these verses is um, this first point. When is not as important as ready. When is not as important as ready. Now, in that classic game of hide-and-seek, it finishes, doesn't it, the countdown with the seeker calling out, ready or not, here I come. And, and that call usually brings an anticipation from the hiders if they can hear it. They're on tenterhooks. And it's an obvious attention-grabbing call to be alert. And here Paul grabs our attention again with his phrase, which he's used before, now, brothers and sisters, about, now about, times and dates, verse 1. He's signaling a new topic here. He's signaling a different angle into Jesus' return. Jesus' return will be unmissable. It's going to be obvious. It's going to be a real-time event. But we don't know when it will happen which for hide-and-seek fans and who need a warning, and for Countdown fans like me, that's really annoying and frustrating. There's no date we can put in the diary. But in God's good wisdom, that secret is a very handy discipleship tool in his hands. He knows that that will build maturity. Holding back that information means we will grow. Grow independence, faith, active trust in the gap between now and what is to come. Verse 1, have a look at it. About times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So Paul reinforces here what he's already taught them when he was with them. He's picking up on stuff he's already shared from his initial visit. He wanted to bring calm where there were disputes and worry about the timing of the Lord's return that were becoming an unhealthy focus. He wanted to put an end to that or at least calm it down. And in the last century, there has been a steady trickle of Christians that fixate on working out the exact time and date of Jesus' return, even believing that with their faith they can make this happen, speed it up in some way. Uh, the Bible scholar who's now in glory, Alec Matea, recalls, he writes this, In 1969, I had a letter from a Christian friend informing me that the world would end in 1971. I did not, however, get a letter of repentance and apology in 1972. <laughs> and here we are in 2022. You see, it is unhelpful, it's futile to probe into the Father's secret, as Jesus himself said in Mark's Gospel, chapter 13. But about the day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, Jesus himself, but only the Father. So, be alert and be on guard. The key thing is to know that the day of the Lord will come. And that phrase, the day of the Lord, 
is a critical one for us to understand. It's found throughout the Old Testament. As you're reading your Bibles, you'll see it particularly in the books of the prophets. The day of the Lord was an awesome day. A day when God decisively steps in to deal with his people. It would be a time when all those who are opposed to him will face judgment. There will be punishment. I'm just going to put up two key verses um, that are on the screen. The first one's Amos 5. I'll read it. Just listen to the flow. What's accentuated in this verse, these verses, 18 to 20? Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be filled with darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion, only to meet a bear. As though he entered his house and rested his hand on a wall, only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light? Pitch dark, without a ray of brightness. I hope you got the emotional intensity of it. It's one of calamity. It's one of darkness. It's, yet it's also a day where God would finally rescue his people. Now listen to this from Zephaniah chapter 3. Then I will purify the lips of my peoples, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshippers, my scattered people will bring me offerings. On that day, they will say, the Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. So can you see the same day? And there's different things going on. There's judgment for some, salvation for others. And the Lord of that day is Jesus Christ. That's the amazing thing the New Testament and everyone was convinced of. The apostles, even Paul, a devout Jew who comes to living faith, says that Lord of that day is the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the divine judge and the perfect Savior. So Paul illustrates the character of Jesus' return and uses two pictures that Jesus used, the thief and the pregnant woman. And the first thing to note, um, and we'll put it up on the slide, is that it's an unexpected, unpredictable return. You see, burglars don't make appointments, do they? I woke up on Thursday morning to find a blue Ford Fiesta dumped on the pavement blocking my driveway. And uh, first thought was, oh, a neighbor's parked badly, because that sort of thing happens in our street. When I went out, second thought became very clear. It was a stolen car. Sure enough, when looking at the car, chatting to neighbors, uh, making the phone call to the police who confirmed the car was stolen. And at that moment, I felt so sorry for the person for whom they were waking up and there was no car either outside their house or on the drive. No warning, just the shock and distress, it's gone. If they had known that a thief was targeting them, well, they'd have taken more precaution, surely. Maybe having the keys, it was a keyless, one of those keyless things. So, you know, these Faraday pouches are really helpful. Or now the old school just steering lock, something that you, you can't move, it's going to go through the windscreen. You know, you make the precautions, don't you, if you know this is coming. Now, Jesus uses a picture of a thief in Luke 12 and Matthew 20, 14, not because he's approving of stealing, but quite simply to show his return will be unpredictable. And believers are not meant to be surprised by this characteristic in verse 5, and yet I'm sure many of us will. We're challenged just by that unpredictability. It doesn't fit my agenda. And then secondly, 
a sudden and inevitable return. Now, that graphic picture of the pregnant women in labor pains, which start without warning, well, they signal that the baby is on the way. And likewise, Jesus' return will be sudden and it will be inevitable. There are things that we can avoid in life, aren't there? Delaying a dentist appointment because we really don't want to go there and have to deal with the pain. Rearranging a difficult meeting at work, that person, that issue, we can just maybe park it in the long grass for another week or two. Not doing homework because we know the teacher's a bit of a soft touch and they'll go, oh, well, it doesn't matter, just we'll give you an extension. Putting off clearing out the garage, there's another one on my list. But you can't avoid childbirth. You can't avoid Jesus' return. And Paul wants us and the Thessalonians to be reassured we can know the certainty that Jesus' return will happen. That's the big headline here. And we're living in very uncertain times, aren't we? We had it prayed for by Sarah, which was lovely. Those different things that are going on in the world. Think about what's happening in Europe. We've got the living crisis costs. We've got financial pressures. We've got a healthcare system that is under immense pressure. We've We've got this sense of political discontent. We've got people still trying to find their way out of COVID and then COVID waves coming and going. For many, peace and security feels fleeting, I reckon. And in many ways, this should be another wake-up call for us. We're not in ultimate control. We should look to the God who we need to depend on for life. And in Paul's day, you know, the Romans... The Roman propaganda made big claims of offering peace and security to its citizens. That's where that phrase comes from. It's mirrored in the literature of the time. People saying peace and security. There were tributes and historical statues that have been found with with that inscribed on them to Rome. But you see, Rome ultimately fell. It didn't bring peace and security. And today, many scoff at the idea of Jesus returning. They've dismissed his resurrection without probably looking into it. So how on earth is he going to return? This is all myth. And yet, even in an atheistic worldview, we all face an inevitable end to our days. Nothingness. You can't really control that. And the Bible encourages us, especially when you look at the book of Ecclesiastes, to think about the consequences of living in a world of nothingness, without meaning. The writer there sees whether you spend your life helping or being fruitful or just being self-centered, that in the end, it really doesn't make any slightest difference for humanity. Well, it just ends. That's the worldview of many today. There's just nothingness with no one to remember anything. And if human beings really are going back to nothing, then maybe we should admit that nothing we do really matters. But we can't live like that. It isn't workable. It doesn't hold the weight of our expectations and our experience as human beings. But Jesus' return promises stability. You see, it promises purpose and hope today. It promises that rights will be wronged, that justice really matters. It will be given. And how we live here and now really matters to God. Especially for Christians who are suffering and facing persecution. For Christians who are investing their lives 
in parts of the world, as we've just heard, where their lives could be ended this week. But there's purpose, stability, there's hope because of the Lord who's in control. It gives us power to endure. Jesus' return does do that. And nothing will prevent his return and his victory. And you see, with that then, the real thing is that it should lead to action. Whether you're a Christian or not, you should be curious to ask, well, if this day is coming, how do I get ready? And that's what verses 4 to 11 show us. How do we get ready? Now, no doubt you've identified in the passage as you heard it read, there are two distinct groups. Can you see that quite clearly as you look in the passage? They've got two distinct identities. There are children of the day or light, and there are people of the night or dark. And they're in stark contrast. They're set up that way. One group are as described as close as family, brothers and sisters, verse 4. They're awake and sober in verse 6. They're dressed appropriately for action in verse 8. The other group of people with a very different outlook. They think they've got peace and security, but their spiritual reality is that they're asleep, they're drunk, they're still in their pajamas. And again, this first group, if we just put the slide up, which has this quote from John 8, this first group belonged to Jesus. Listen how he described those coming to him. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So there's the light. Those who follow Jesus are people of light, children of light. The second group have rejected Jesus' gift. So again, in John's gospel, we read this in John chapter 3. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, i.e. Jesus has come. But people love darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear their deeds will be exposed. That is instinctively, naturally, where we go. Hide me. I don't want to be in the light. And darkness is a picture of that ignorance, that separation from God uh, and from each other because of our sin. The author Rebecca McLaughlin describes this reality really well. She says, it's been said that no friendship in the world would last a day if you could see each other's thoughts. Run that test on yourself between now and tomorrow. Think of the people you'll spend time with and ask, would I like them to see the transcript of my thoughts? Marriages would wither, children would be crushed, friends would leave. Our thoughts and our actions are not all bad. Many are good and kind, but like a bag of flour that's infested with maggots. No part of us is pure. Interestingly, the Russian novelist Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who died in 2008, he came to realize this when he was just lying on rotting straw in a Soviet gulag, he he said this, gradually it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states nor between classes nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. Now he's not saying that it doesn't affect those things, but it becomes intensely personal. The realization shows us that in all our relationships with God and with others, there's a deep fear of exposure. So that darkness often feels more comfortable than even though it's going to lead to destruction. But the good news of the gospel is that that doesn't have to be the case. That really doesn't have to be the case. We can be delivered from destruction. We can enjoy the light and life of Jesus. Did you see that in verses 9 to 10? If there's two verses you commit to memory, 
from Thessalonians, I'd say those are two very good verses. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. So how do we get ready? Accept the rescue. Accept the rescue. Our salvation rests entirely on God's work. He appointed us. It's his son who's done the work, who went to the cross, taking the penalty of our sin. We'll remember that when we take the bread and the wine later. The Lord Jesus has achieved all of this so that we could live a life of power and motivation, readiness and service. And that's what's then described in verses 6 to 8. So I flipped the order around, went to verses 9 to 10, so you could see why, how we get ready. It's in what he's done. And then out of that flows this response. So the first thing we noticed are these behaviors that are typical of day and night. First one, verse 6, keep awake. Keep awake. Don't panic. Paul is not commanding sleep deprivation. This isn't an SAS challenge where you're up for 48 plus hours having to function. He wants us to be awake spiritually. Again, think of that snooze button on your alarm clock, which you hit instead of getting straight up in the morning. Do you get caught in that dream state where you've convinced you're dressed, you're already, your day's going, and then you wake up again, or is that just me, you know, and you're like, oh, I thought I'd done all this. Um, to keep awake spiritually means not being lazy or careless. It's practically, it's considering the, the media that influences us, the, the messages we're watching and listening to, and carefully being aware of them, not just like letting it wash in. Having that rock-centered foundation of God's word. To keep awake means being careful about how we speak and treat the people around us. Not just at certain periods that suit us, but at all times. Being alert to that. Recognizing that there's a spiritual battle that's raging around us. These things in this world are being worked out in the principalities. In a spiritual reality, thankfully, veiled from us. Because we wouldn't be able to exist if we saw it all. It would blow us away. It means being wise and knowledgeable about the things we're susceptible to temptation. Where are the no-go areas and steering clear? And then we've got to be clear-headed. Let us be awake and sober for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. The person picture here is clear-headed. They're on task. They're focused with the right priorities. And I was struck by an example of this clear-headed focus. So much so in the place that I saw it, I took a photo of it. Uh, and here it is. If Ali can flick on the slide. This is on one of the walls at Man City's first team training ground. And it's very near the boot room. So as the players walk past, they'll see this. And basically, it's the year of a professional football player split into days. 55 days on match days. 55 days are preparation. 55 recovery days. 21 days off. 175 days training. That's your year. Every day. <laughs> Just in bold. That's a huge focus. 65% is on training and preparation. And actually, the recovery days kind of work into that as well to some extent. But 
everything. Training, 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 training. For what? For the match day, the thing that counts. And then go again, and then go again. Every day, that is focus. Now for the Christian, we're living all our days, every day, in the light of one everlasting day. Where we'll live with Jesus. Isn't that worthy of a little pie chart on our walls? <laughs> what would that pie chart look like for you? Just think of this week, how you're going to carve up the week. That intentionality. So staying sober is all about moral readiness. It's the person who is clear-headed, who is not confused, is not distracted, because the gospel, Jesus Christ, is front and center is keeping on task, is focused on the Lord's priorities. It's hard to be morally ready when we're impatient, when we're lustful, when we're angry, when we're reckless, when we're wasting time. So to be clear-minded means recognizing the battles that intoxicate us, that are offered by the world, whether that's uh, pleasure, whether that's profit, whether that's popularity, the three Ps, fighting for our hearts and minds. To stay sober means remembering the reality of hell, the wonderful gift of salvation as well. It means lovingly crossing that awkward pain barrier to talk to whether it's a neighbor, whether it's a relative we love dearly, whether it's a colleague that we get on well with, and doing that in appropriate ways to talk about the good news of Jesus, to be the person who can love and serve, investing time in them in genuine ways. Saying clear-minded means deliberately using the time and resources we have in ways that make Jesus' love and good news known. That's focus. That's clear-headedness. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives if we said yes to Jesus. And then finally, get dressed. Thankfully, everyone at church today is dressed. So that isn't necessarily an application, but get dressed spiritually. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, that clear-headedness, putting on the, on the faith and love as, breastplate, as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Wearing the right clothes is vital. Uh, Didier and Matilda were doing marriage prep with Emily and I this week. If Didier shows up in a few weeks' time, uh, on his wedding day, in his PJs, having just rolled out of bed, it's going to start badly. Okay, Didier, that's a little bit of advice. I know you've got a dapper suit all lined up. You'll look superb. But if you were to do that, eh -eh. Now, if a firefighter was to turn up to a call-out just wearing a swimsuit, eh -eh, that's not going to work either, is it? There's an appropriateness to what we wear for the work and the stuff that's happening. And the everyday Christian living, God has given us the right armor, the right kit to wear. And actually, this armor is what he wears. Isaiah 59, 17 is a description of the Lord returning, and he's suited and booted as a warrior with the breastplate of righteousness, with the helmet of salvation. And Paul elaborates on this spiritual armor in Ephesians 6, and he, he applies it in different ways. But here, what he's doing is taking the three qualities he's already mentioned back in chapter 1, faith, love, and hope, and he's showing them how this works out in everyday life. Living the life of faith, love, and hope is the armor. That's the kit for living God's way. 
And that faith is trusting him for all he supplies, salvation and everything, depending on Jesus as Lord and Savior. That love is enjoying and being transformed by God's saving love and then sharing that. Supportively encouraging Christian fellowship, therefore, is a vital defense against spiritual and emotional battles we face. It's a gift to keep us clear-minded. And then the hope of salvation, that isn't just some vague feeling, everything will work out okay. It is the concrete reality that the rescue of Jesus has secured our home with him. That hope is his action. It's on Jesus. He's given us the clothing to make sure that we're fit for the journey, this lifetime ahead, ready to meet him. So as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, verse 11 cannot be forgotten. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you were doing. Grace Church, this is what we're called to. Clear-headedness, being dressed, being ready, looks like looking after each other so that we get there together. No one left behind. No one forgotten. You see, the journey to Christ's kingdom is not one we travel on our own. We've been given each other to pursue him, to enjoy him. So whether that's in your life groups, whether that's in conversations before or after Sunday meetings, whether it's just meeting up in the week and being able to intentionally pray with each other or sending those encouraging WhatsApp messages or a card or an email that just shows people you're thinking and praying for them. It's all done in the light of that everlasting day. Every day in the light of an everlasting day. And you know the Lord Jesus will be delighted if we use these God-given words in verses 1 to 11 to comfort and sharpen each other up. As Jez said last week, this, this isn't knowledge like figuring out a crossword to be intellectually satisfied. There's a great picture there. We're not doing this to pat ourselves on the back. This is knowledge that is applied to show care for each other. It's a readiness to spur one another on making sure no one in our family is left behind. We're ready. So positively, let me ask you this question as we come to consider the Lord's Supper. What would you want to be found doing when Jesus returns? What would you want to be found doing when Jesus returns? Now, if you're fast asleep, that doesn't, uh, that's not like a bad thing. <laughs> yeah? But it's that position of the heart and the mind in him, investing each day in him. You see, the attitude we need to live in the present is to do what God has given us to do today. What you're going into this week, being done for him, intentionally, alert, ready, wherever he's sending you, clear-headed, dressed for action, and encouraging one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this rock-solid truth that we can rejoice in. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Father, may that reality transform our hearts, minds, our lives, not just this day, but for the time you've given us on this earth until Christ returns, that we would live 
in your power and for your glory. Amen.